California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive bonus per month, and there are currently more than 45 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. In addition, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. As for August, I've just about settled on which cases I'm going to cover on Patreon, so look for those very soon in your Patreon feeds. This week, I'd like to thank Sue B., Rex H., Adrian B., Elizabeth L., Joyce F., Rachel D., and Liberty G. for joining Patreon and April G. and Natasha for raising their pledges to the next tier. And if you are unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming alive, so thank you. Before we delve into today's episode, I must provide you with this warning. This story contains details involving sexual assault, sustained physical, emotional, and mental and sexual abuse, and elements of torture, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. So, dreamers, I know that I disappointed several of you this past week when I said that I would cover the Morgan Ingram case, and then I announced on Facebook that I would be postponing that indefinitely. I really hate that I did that. I was ready to get back onto topics that were much more serious after we'd spent the last couple weeks clowning around on Jesse Smollett. Now, I'm not not going to do the episode, or likely multiple episodes on Morgan, I do think that there is a lot of information out there that many of you, and myself included, haven't heard about the case. And I mean, we've heard a lot about Morgan Ingram's case and her family and their fight to have her death investigated as a murder. While I'm not going to speak too much on it for right now, for those of you who did not recognize the case, 
Morgan Ingram was a 20-year-old college student from Carbondale, Colorado, who was discovered deceased on the morning of December 2, 2011. Her death was eventually found to be the result of an overdose of amitriptyline, which is an antidepressant, that Morgan did have a prescription for. But despite a lack of evidence pointing to anything other than this being a purposeful ingestion of the drug on Morgan's part, in what many believe to have been Morgan committing suicide, the fact is that her death has been ruled a suicide. Her parents, along with an army of online supporters, are adamant that Morgan was murdered by a young man that they say was stalking Morgan relentlessly for the four months leading up to her death. A couple of things happened that had me second-guessing the decision to explore that particular case. It wasn't anything weird or harmful or scary. Just one or two little red flags that got me thinking that I needed to wait a little bit before we go there. I said in the Facebook group that it would never be my intentions to attack or undermine anything that the Ingrams have said or done over the last eight and a half years since Morgan's death. Though I do think some of the things that have happened in online forums and whatnot are things to be cautious of. I do have to admit to you guys that I really don't agree with the family's theory on what happened to their daughter. That doesn't mean that I think they're being untruthful or attempting to mislead or bend the story one way or another. The Ingrams have experienced the loss of a child, and I'm in no position to challenge what is their truth. But because they have been outspoken, and they've given interviews, and they've been on TV, and they've opened up about how they feel about what happened, and they maintain an extensive blog and website, and everything related to Morgan's case, including police reports, autopsy reports, etc., everything is out there. It's available for public consumption. Therefore, I feel the public, meaning us, has every right to express our reactions to and opinions on all of that information that is out there. On top of that, as long as we all qualify what we say and write as being our own personal opinions, I think we have the right to articulate them freely without fear of being criticized or disparaged because of it. I'll be honest with you dreamers, I've been criticized a lot lately. Fortunately, mostly in private messages or in emails, but sometimes in some comments that are on the Facebook page as well. Some didn't like the way that I covered the murder of Lawrence King, also known as Letitia King. And perhaps I didn't handle it the best way by choosing to identify him by his given birth name and male pronouns, because in the days and maybe a couple weeks towards the end of his life, he did start telling people that he wanted to be called Letitia and he did want to identify as a female. I decided to go ahead and discuss his story as he had been referred to throughout the course of his life, which was his birth name, in order to keep it consistent with the events that happened to him. He did want to transition. He wanted to identify as a female. But the majority of his life, he went by Lawrence. So I chose to go with that. I didn't unknowingly or purposely misgender him. I just made a decision based on how the case had been recounted in various articles and online forums. It was never my intentions to offend anybody, him, his family, 
nor was it my intentions to tarnish his memory. So my apologies for that. It was just a decision that I made. I was criticized recently for some things that I said about law enforcement, particularly in the Changeling episode. And most recently, I took criticism for the Jesse Smollett series. The good news is that nobody who had anything negative to say about any of these episodes had to pay a single dime to listen to anything that they didn't agree with. So I don't have to give anybody any refunds. And that's basically what all this comes down to, my friends. It's free content. And yeah, I have opinions and I make decisions. We all do it. And we can't please everybody all the time. It would be an exercise in futility. That being said, I do take a lot of flack. I just don't talk about it all that much because the positive feedback is much more plentiful anyway. And that keeps me going. But it is also the reason why I decided to steer clear of the controversial hot button cases for right now. Not forever, because I don't feel like anybody should ever be pushed or intimidated out of doing what they want to do or to be forced into silence. But for now, I'm going to go back to the regular old run-of-the-mill murder and mayhem. So let's get on with this latest episode of California Dreaming, the tale of seven years in a box. And dreamers, let's talk about hitchhiking for a moment. Standing along the side of the road and using a signal or a sign of some sort to alert passing motorists that you're looking for a ride. Preferably a free ride, as long as you are headed in the same general direction as the motorist. Hitchhiking became a popular manner in which to travel in the United States during the Great Depression, which lasted from 1929 to 1933. Because we are true crime fans, we've long cringed at the thought of accepting a ride and getting into a car with a stranger that is until the advent of ride-sharing services such as Lyft and Uber. But you all know what I'm talking about. We hear these cases, oh, so-and-so was hitchhiking or he or she was walking along and accepted an offer for a ride, etc., etc. And then from there, they meet a terrible fate. And there has been a notable decline in hitchhiking, particularly here in the United States. And that may be the case in other countries around the world. While in some, the practice may still be a normal everyday thing. But the truth of the matter is the practice of hitchhiking didn't fizzle out solely because of stranger danger, but other factors that made travel easier and more affordable and more accessible. Air travel became less expensive. Cars became more reliable. Freeways were expanding. Vehicles were capable of higher speeds. And with that, speed limits were being raised, making hitchhiking a ride from a speeding vehicle more difficult when the old clunkers of yesteryear would go sputtering by and would easily be able to stop and pull over and pick somebody up. And of course, there was a growing distrust and suspicion of strangers. While the data related to hitchhiking and safety is difficult to track because it is hard to count the numbers of people who hitchhike, 
the rides that they get and how many people have accepted rides, it's hard to gather all that information and there's no real reliable way to track it. But when it comes to some of the studies that had been conducted in past decades, and one was done by the California Highway Patrol, it was found that people who hitchhike are not more likely or stood a higher risk of becoming a victim of a violent crime as a result of the hitchhiking. And the risk is actually lower than what the public perception is. When you look at the big picture, the attacks on hitchhikers is really a rare occurrence. However, in general, drivers are warned that there is a potential danger when it comes to picking up strangers, that the driver might fall victim to a robbery, or possibly worse, they could be sexually assaulted or possibly even murdered. And the same warnings goes out to those who are doing the hitchhiking, as they too may become a victim of violent crime perpetrated by the person or persons offering them a ride. As of today, hitchhiking is legal in 45 states, though some do have some restrictions that vary from state to state depending. For the most part, as long as you are off to the side of the road and a safe distance away from the flow of traffic, you're good. The states where hitchhiking is completely illegal is New Jersey, Delaware, Idaho, Utah, and Nevada. So interestingly enough, while I was looking online, I found some what were referred to as quote-unquote notable hitchhikers. I did not know that this was a thing. The first notable hitchhikers that were mentioned in this list are those that went hitchhiking along what is known as the Highway of Tears. And that's the moniker that was given to a 450-mile or 725-kilometer stretch of Canada's Highway 16 that runs generally east and west with some windiness that goes north for a bit, starting along the west coast of British Columbia, where the highway starts in Prince Rupert, just south of where the southernmost tip of Alaska meets Canada, all the way to the east to Prince George, and that covers about two-thirds the distance across the province of British Columbia. The Highway of Tears was given its name in 1998 at a vigil that was being held for women that had gone missing or had been murdered after being picked up hitchhiking along that stretch of highway. And the numbers of women who are on the list of victims are most often Indigenous women who have long endured having been marginalized in many aspects of the Canadian social injustice system because of racism, poverty, drug abuse issues, as well as the Indian residential school system, which systematically disrupted family structures. The highway is a place for women who need to travel long distances for a variety of reasons, but lack the resources to afford the travel or don't own a vehicle for the same reasons. The areas that the highway passes through are vast. It's very isolated and it's easy to carry out violent crimes without being detected. It's easy to dispose of a victim once she is murdered because from there, their remains are done away with by animal activity and the environment. So all evidence of any crime or the victim is gone forever. So that is what the Highway of Tears is when it comes to our discussion here on hitchhiking. 
In addition to that, other notable hitchhikers include journalist from New Zealand named Joe Bennett, who hitchhiked around the world for about a decade. Then there's Andre Brugereau, a man from France who did the same thing. He hitchhiked around the world from 1955 to 1973, a total of 18 years. David Cho, he was an artist who hitchhiked around for two years. In Canada, again, they had a thing called a hitchbot, which was a hitchhiking robot, I guess. Then there's Sasha Grabau, a man from Germany. He has traveled to all 193 countries on the planet Earth that belong to the United Nations. There are 195 countries in total on Earth, but two do not belong to the United Nations, and he did not go there. Sasha's also been to all 50 states, a feat that took him 20 years to complete from 1993 to 2013, starting in Hawaii and ending in Idaho. Sasha did most of his traveling exclusively by hitchhiking or walking, but he has ridden bikes and motorbikes on occasion. He hitchhiked in every country except for five. North Korea, which is where he traveled with the group. Bhutan, where he was required to travel with the guide. Liechtenstein, San Marino, and Andorra. And in those three places, he drove himself around. Ilmar Sar is in the Guinness Book of World Records for his accomplishment of hitchhiking from Key West, Florida to Fairbanks, Alaska, which took him five days, 20 hours, and 52 minutes. I didn't look around to see which route he took, but when I put the two points into maps, it was about 5,000 miles or 8,050 kilometers, approximately an 80-hour drive. Robert Prinz is also in the Guinness Book of World Records for setting a 24-hour hitchhiking record, having traveled 1,440 miles or 2,318 kilometers. Stephen Schele, also from Germany, set the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest distance hitchhiked in total, which was 621,371 miles or 1 million kilometers. Incidentally, the Guinness Book of World Records does not record hitchhiking feats anymore. Another notable hitchhiker is author Jack Kerouac. He wrote The Beat Generation. He hitchhiked around the United States and wrote about his experiences. Then there was Chris McCandless. We covered him in episode 56 of our show entitled The Tale of the Supertramp. He hitchhiked around the western part of North America and ended up in Alaska in that abandoned school bus, which, incidentally, was just removed from that site in June, and it was airlifted out of there by an Alaskan National Guard helicopter, and I believed moved or is planning to be moved to a museum someplace in Fairbanks. And the reason is, is because people were still continuing to travel to that bus, and some people were not making it out alive, so they decided to just get rid of the thing. Anyway, the list of notable hitchhikers consists of several more journalists and writers who hitchhike in order to write or publish material about the whole experience. And finally, one of the people listed as a notable hitchhiker is the person we are going to discuss today. She is not a world record setter, not a writer, not a journalist, not a super tramp. While she may be an adventure seeker of sorts, she was, for the most part, your average 20-year-old who thought she knew the ins and outs of the art of hitchhiking. When one day in May of 1977, 
She was hitchhiking in order to go visit a friend in California. And when she accepted that ride, it would change the entire trajectory of her life forever. And we're going to discuss her experience here today. So let's get to it. Colleen Stan. In 1977, she was a young woman living in Eugene, Oregon with some roommates. She was born on New Year's Eve, December 31, 1956. By the time Colleen was 20, in the late spring of 1977, like many a 20-year-old, she considered herself to be pretty savvy when it came to the ways of the world. While she had a car, it was kind of a piece of junk. So one of her go-to ways of getting around was hitchhiking. As a matter of fact, if you ask Colleen back then, she'd be the first to tell you that she considered herself to be an experienced hitchhiker. Experienced when it came to hitchhiking. She knew all about it. What does that even mean? Did she even know what it meant when she said it? What's an experienced hitchhiker? Well, if you're Colleen Stan, it might mean that she's been given so many rides while hitchhiking that it's become easy for her to stick out her thumb knowing a car will roll to a stop and pick her up within minutes. Or perhaps she knew of all the good places to look for rides. She knows the places that are easy for people to pull over and to let her in the car or the vehicle or the truck. Maybe Colleen has a particularly effective technique when it comes to getting passing motorists to notice her and to stop. That could be what Colleen meant when she called herself an experienced hitchhiker. But because of the way her story was going to end up unfolding, and the fact that we're sitting here talking about it on this podcast, I think we can safely assume that she meant she knew when to accept a ride from a stranger and when to turn it down. At least, she thought she knew. Well, now, of course, us here today listening to this cringe at the notion of hitchhiking. I know I do. I would just be beside myself if my daughter was telling me she was hitchhiking anywhere. And we're from California, so... Everybody has to have a car. You just don't, like, not have a car in California. And we may be sitting here thinking, this Colleen person, she sounds a little bit naive and overconfident when it comes to getting into a car with a complete stranger. But we are talking about 43 years ago now, and times were different. People were more trusting, and hitchhiking was more commonplace than it is today for the reasons that I explained in the opening of the story. And if we're thinking that Colleen is naive and gullible, to be honest, as the story goes along, you're not going to be exactly wrong, more so than this just being about the hitchhiking and considering herself to be quote-unquote experienced. We will see several shades of gullibility as we go along here throughout her experiences over the ensuing several years following that fateful day in 1977 when she accepted what would be the final ride by way of hitchhiking she would ever take in her life. Colleen had a friend who lived in Westwood, California that was celebrating her birthday that upcoming weekend and she wanted to go down there to surprise her friend. 
Now, this isn't the Westwood that's in the Los Angeles area. This is the city of Westwood, which is about 100 miles or 160 kilometers northwest of Reno, Nevada. So the friend had no idea that Colleen was making this journey down to see her. But she really didn't have a way to get down to Westwood from Eugene, which was a 400 mile or 640 kilometer drive because her own car was not being cooperative with her on that day. She tried, but the thing wouldn't start. Nor did it seem that Colleen had the money to fly or take a bus, so hitchhiking it was. While Colleen was standing along the side of the road in Oregon on Thursday, May 19, 1977, thumbing a ride using her instincts that were kicking in, she'd actually turned down a couple of offers along the way. Remember, she's experienced at this, reading people, who to accept rides from, who not to. And even Colleen's dad, Jack Nolan, he himself said that all the kids were hitchhiking at the time. It was so commonplace, he called it a hippie thing. Colleen readily admits that it was her youthful outlook on life, like the world was her oyster, so to speak. And that was very much the mentality of many young people at the time. And I don't know if that has necessarily changed. I remember getting out of high school and feeling like I could do anything I wanted to do. And that was already into the early 90s. And even now with my own daughter, she's about to turn 21 in a few days. And despite everything going on in the world, I still see the ambition and desire to live her life the way that she wants to and to do the things that make her feel happy and fulfilled to spend time with the people that she loves and cares about. I mean, she's just entered into that time in her life where she and her friends will decide that if they get off work at 11 p.m. or midnight, they'll just go ahead and stay up so they can hang out and watch the sun come up over the horizon. Then they will go home and sleep the rest of the morning away. That's kind of what I imagined when I listened to Colleen Stan say that she had the whole world in the palm of her hand. And, you know, just knowing that you're happy and free and spontaneous and adventurous, even if it is something seemingly inconsequential or insignificant as surprising a friend or staying up to watch the sunrise. And I like that. I like my daughter being able to feel that way. I liked feeling that way. Fortunately, I think I'm feeling myself embracing that same mentality as I enter this new phase into my life on my own, finding a new way to just be myself. However, I will not be hitchhiking anywhere to get there. Though at times, maybe some of you feel the same way too, I do feel like getting into my car and seeing where the road takes me. It's just too damn hot right now. But anyway... That was one of the things that I liked about the beginning of the story. The simplicity and the innocence of that time. The rest of the story, unfortunately, is a nightmare. So by way of hitchhiking, Colleen managed to make her way about 300 miles or 480 kilometers towards her destination by accepting rides from several truck drivers. And she ended up getting dropped off by the last trucker near Red Bluff, California, leaving her just 100 miles or 160 kilometers from her destination. 
She had been heading south on Interstate 5, and the trucker took her as far as Highway 36, which is the route that would take her heading east towards Westwood. So she needed to find another ride that was headed in that direction. And this was one of the locations where she was offered a ride in a vehicle in which there were five young men who were very happy and interested in giving Colleen a ride. And she was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Shortly after that, Colleen continued hitchhiking, looking for a ride, when a blue van pulled up and offered her one. She looked inside. There was a man driving. And with him in the passenger seat was his wife. And in the vehicle with them was their baby, only seven months old at the time. As she stood there, she sized him up, you know, using her experience. She described the man as being kind of a geek. And if you've seen pictures of him, he is indeed geeky looking. And his wife, Colleen, said, just look normal, like a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill looking lady with a baby. Nothing nefarious about that at all. This is what Colleen's thinking, so she accepted the ride. And this is what I was referring to when I said maybe she was a little bit more naive and gullible than she thought herself to be. But at the time, there really wasn't anything about this couple that would reveal any hint of what was to come. They were like Ted Bundy, too innocuous looking to be that evil and sadistic. Ted Bundy and this couple picking up Colleen are the exact reasons, the perfect examples of why you cannot judge books by their covers. And we know about Ted Bundy now, but based on the manner in which Colleen had been hitchhiking around that time, it makes me wonder how much she really knew what was going on during that era because Bundy had been quite a prolific serial killer at that exact time leading up to 1977. Most of his known killings were happening in the state of Washington with a total of 11 known victims, followed by a close second by the state of Oregon with a total of eight known victims, all of which took place in 1974, only three years before Colleen's story took place. And the killings were happening at an incredibly alarming rate, I mean, in the first half of 1974, Bundy was killing literally every month, every single month, he was killing a woman. January, February, March, April, May. In June, he killed two victims. In July, he murdered two in one day at Lake Sammamish, just east of Bellevue, Washington. Eight victims he admitted to in Oregon. Did Colleen have any idea what was going on? Did she know about the unknown serial killer terrorizing the Pacific Northwest? Looking at pictures of Colleen back in the 1970s, she very easily could have fit the victim type that Bundy targeted. What did she know? Did she know that young women were vanishing? And if she did, was this a case of her simply trusting her instincts? Perhaps. Now granted, by the time Colleen set off for California in May of 1977, Ted Bundy had been on law enforcement's radar for a couple of years by then for his crimes. He was arrested near Salt Lake City, Utah in 1975 as he was trolling around in a neighborhood 
in the early morning hours of August 16th. Bundy had given chase, but he was eventually pulled over in that infamous Volkswagen bug with the missing passenger seat. He also had with him a ski mask, pantyhose, a tire iron, handcuffs, garbage bags, rope, an ice pick, things that the officer assumed was a burglary kit. Bundy tried to explain the items away as normal things the average everyday person has with them because we all have ski masks, pantyhose, tire irons, handcuffs, garbage bags, rope, and an ice pick in our cars, right? But even if the officer believed that, Bundy was driving a vehicle he had remembered had been reported as being involved in a November 1974 attempted kidnapping of Carol Durant. She had escaped, and Bundy eventually went on trial for that attempted kidnapping in February of 1976. Now, while Bundy was suspected of much more than just kidnapping, there just wasn't yet enough evidence to charge him with anything more serious, so getting him behind bars for this crime was going to have to suffice while investigators used that time to look more into Bundy and his background. He was found guilty during a bench trial and sentenced to 1 to 15 years that June of 76. Four months later, Bundy had attempted an escape. He was discovered hiding in the prison yard in some bushes with some maps and airline flight schedules and a social security card. He would go on to be charged with his first murder later on that same month, a murder that took place in Colorado. So he was extradited to Aspen in January of 1977. And just six months later, on June 7, 1977, Ted Bundy successfully escaped from the courthouse in Aspen and was on the run for six days. So all of this to say is that if Colleen Stan was aware of Ted Bundy and the crimes that he had been suspected of, she may also have known that he had been caught and was in jail. But had he been linked to the murders in Oregon yet? Or was it still too early to know or tell? And really, how much of what was going on with Ted Bundy was making headlines at the time across state lines? And were they connecting all the dots in terms of all of those states that Ted Bundy had been murdering in? Probably not. Not once had Colleen ever said that she was leery of serial killers. I don't even think the word serial killer even existed at the time. Colleen said she was experienced, but was she paying attention to the news? I don't know. Now, in the past, I've asked my mother-in-law about Ted Bundy and other... Sometimes we talk about true crime, but her mind is a little bit scrambled after so many years of I don't know what. She's just kind of, as of late, a little bit out of it. Her memory... She doesn't retain anything, so. She was born in January of 1959, so just a little more than two years younger than Colleen. My mother-in-law graduated from high school in 1977. She lived in Northern California on and off leading up to that. She attended college at the University of Nevada in Reno, so she was not exactly in the areas where Ted Bundy was killing but she was definitely in his path of travel, if you know what I mean. And I've asked her, do you remember young women going missing in the early to mid-70s in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Idaho? 
literally every single state surrounding where she lived. And she was like, I had no idea. I was surprised, but then seeing as I believe her to have frequently been under the influence of psychotropic drugs at the time, it was a little bit less surprising. So there's that. Now, all of this is to say that it's possible that despite, you know, all we know about Ted Bundy today and every other serial killer that we've been fascinated with before and since, that people at the time just didn't know. Colleen Stan being one of them. It's possible. And it may explain her blasé attitude about getting into vehicles with strangers. So the wind-up here is Colleen got into the vehicle with this man and his wife and their baby at a time when Ted Bundy had faced his first conviction for kidnapping and literally just 19 days before he escaped from the Aspen courthouse. Chances are that Colleen had no idea who Ted Bundy was. I just found it interesting how Colleen continued to view the world as a place for her to live life on her own terms, to live free, to have fun, to accept rides from strangers, while Ted Bundy was going around taking advantage of that exact state of mind of every young woman who fell victim to him. So trusting this man, who was only 23 years old at the time that he picked up Colleen, along with his wife and an infant, she got into the back seat of the vehicle. Colleen called it a car while in some places it was described as a van. I'm thinking it was a van based on what would happen later on during this ride. So Colleen is trusting this young family. And many of us would probably trust them too, you know. As they're driving along, Colleen is in the back seat and she can see the man's eyes going from looking at the road to looking in his rearview mirror and staring at her. Numerous times he did this, glancing at his mirror just to look, and this gave her a very uneasy feeling. She began to get a creepy sort of vibe from him, but Colleen continued to sit quietly in the back seat as they drove along. About five minutes or so passed from the time that Colleen got into the car when the driver pulled off into a gas station to fill up. Colleen got out of the vehicle and went to go use the restroom. And as she was in there, Colleen described hearing a voice. She said, maybe it was God or some sort of guardian angel. And I've talked about this before. Back in the episode that we did on serial killer Andrew Erdialis, episode 91, his only survivor, Jennifer S. Benson, she described an experience that aided her in her escape as being of the divine intervention sort. And I was quick to express my belief in one's own instincts and abilities and gut feelings and intuition. That we don't necessarily have to credit divinity for stepping in and saving us from a horrifying fate. A couple of listeners took issue with my giving credit to the survivor instead of God, which wasn't exactly my intentions. It was more of an acknowledgement of one's own capabilities that women and men too sometimes are more capable and aware than they might want to give themselves credit for. I think that both Jennifer S. Benson and Colleen Stan diminished or annulled their judgment or ability to assess a situation because of what happened to them. 
But to me, that pales in comparison to the fact that they were both able to come out the other end of their individual ordeals as survivors. And the amazingness of that seems lost on both of them, so they tend to credit God or a miracle outside themselves or some intangible type of intervention for saving them. When I would strongly disagree and say no, all the credit goes to them. As we sit here and watch these women recount the worst thing that ever happened to them in their lives, we see them as miracles, yes. I'll say it's a miracle. But it's a miracle that they made happen. Not anybody or anyone or anything else. Just them. So when Colleen suggested that she heard the voice of God or a guardian angel, I would be one to suggest that it was Colleen's own inner dialogue that she was hearing. Her own thoughts, her own self-speak. She was assessing the situation. She was trying to figure out what she should do. She needed to make a choice. Go with her gut and walk away and find another ride or convince herself that she was overthinking things. She was letting her mind get carried away and she wanted to squash those feelings and just continue on with this seemingly nice couple and their baby. You see, she said that she was inside the bathroom and she noticed a window. A window that she would have been able to open and crawl out of and walk away without having to see or speak to the couple who had given her a ride or to have to explain why she'd rather walk. She probably told them that she was headed to Westwood and clearly they weren't even close yet. They'd only traveled together for about five minutes, no more than ten. Colleen was still at least an hour away from her destination. So if they had offered her a ride and likely told her that they were headed in that direction, there'd be no real good reason for Colleen to be able to come up with without insulting them or having to tell them the truth that they made her skin crawl and that she'd rather not continue on. Nobody wants to have that awkward conversation, right? So as Colleen was in the bathroom, contemplating what to do next, as the voices were telling her to jump out that window, run away, and never look back, she decided to go with her initial impression of the young couple. She decided that they were trustworthy, and she decided to continue on, despite what the voices in her head were warning her to do. And you know, at this point, you got to put yourself in Colleen's place. She's been on the road all day. She's already traveled three-fourths of this journey. Who knows when another suitable ride would come along this late in the day. We may sit here and question and wonder why she just didn't go with her instincts and the voices of reason telling her to run, but putting ourselves in her place, and it's May, so you know the weather is warm. It's probably going to be nighttime soon. She was almost there. She certainly didn't want to get stranded there with no place to go overnight. She just wasn't going to listen to the voice that was telling her to run because she was weighing her options and she just didn't want to waste any more time, possibly the whole night, looking for another ride if she got lucky. And let's face it, while we would probably not like looking for rides from strangers any time of the day, we really don't like looking for rides from strangers under the cloak of darkness even more so. When your options are slim, you're just going to take what you can get. And you know, dreamers, as I was talking about options, it, I suddenly got reminded of this story like from 14 or 15 years ago that annoyed me so much at the time, but 
kind of like my Dairy Queen incident. It's kind of funny now, but it wasn't in the moment. So it was like July. And I remember because it was really hot in the middle of summer. I'm going to say it was like 2006, maybe 2005. Yeah, 2006. I was driving in Long Beach, California. I don't know where I was headed. And while I was going along, I could feel that my car was suddenly starting to act up. So I pulled off to the first driveway that I figured I could park in and wait safely for the roadside assistance. And in this parking lot, there was a Quiznos sandwich shop. And there really wasn't anything else around, any other type of businesses like that. There was like a cell phone dealer and some office buildings, maybe some furniture stores, but nothing like a, a Starbucks or a place to get something cool to drink and, and relax, just the Quiznos. And if you aren't familiar with Quiznos, it was a similar style restaurant as a Subway, a little bit more pricey, and it was founded in 1981 in Denver, Colorado. At its peak, there were about 5,000 locations in the United States by 1991. However, between 2007 and 2017, in that decade, the numbers of locations had started taking a nosedive and dropped to only about 400 locations. And I liked Quiznos. And I remember the restaurants shuttering their doors one by one. And eventually, all of the ones that I had used to have gone to were no more. And I didn't really know exactly why. I most recently went to one, I want to say gosh, maybe about last year sometime in Arizona. So they're still around. They're just not everywhere like they used to be. Okay, so I looked it up and there are two of them in Las Vegas. So I think I am going to need to go to Quiznos soon. And as I wrote that, a couple of days have passed and I did go to Quiznos. I went yesterday and I got a sandwich and it was really good. It was not busy and I'm hoping that they're able to stay open. But I did make a Quiznos run just yesterday. Anyway, so I called David and I think we had just gotten married, but he was still in the process of moving from Nevada to California. So we weren't living at the time he was going to be going into the army or I can't remember. It's been so long. My whole mind, our marriage is like a big blur now. So I called him and I told him that my car was broken down and I explained where I was at and that I had called roadside assistance, and they were going to be a while. So I told David that Evelyn and I, and Evelyn was about six or seven at the time, we were going to go get some lunch at Quiznos. And David says, I don't like Quiznos. (laughs) And I was okay, like, you little dickhead. It's 100 degrees out here. My car is broken. I was lucky to get into a parking lot with a business that I can go inside and order some food, and wait for help, whereas I could have been stuck on a freeway or in the middle of nowhere or someplace where I can't relax or cool down or get something to eat and something cold to drink. Put yourself in my place and Quiznos is going to sound pretty damn good right about now. So if you were with me, I'm telling him, and you're stuck in this situation and you're hot and you're hungry and you're trapped and across the way is this oasis that is Quiznos, You're going to tell me that you'd rather sit out in the sweltering sun next to the car and probably just die before any help would ever come before you'd actually have a sandwich and a cold soda in an air-conditioned Quiznos restaurant. 
Just go ahead and die out there with the car if you want. I don't like Quiznos. That's what he said to me on the phone. What the hell? I was so, dude, I was so annoyed when he said that. And then it dawned on me and I thought about it because we were on the phone and I was getting really irritated because I was already stressed because of my car. And I had only known David for about maybe a year and a half or so at this point. And I never knew of him to ever gone to Quiznos. We'd never talk about it. And so I asked, have you even tried Quiznos? And you guys, you want to know what he said? You want to know what this bonehead said to me? No. No. He's never tried Quiznos. He had this nerve to tell me. Stranded. Broken down car with my kid who was like six or seven years old. And we are overheating, sweltering hot, sweating, stressed, tired, hungry, thirsty. And he doesn't like Quiznos. But he's never been there. I should have been done with him right then and there, huh? (laughs) Eventually, I forced him to try Quiznos. And guess what? He liked it. And it turned out to be one of our favorite places to go until we started having trouble finding them. But I did go to Quiznos. And if you are near one I would, and you've never been, I would suggest you try it. It's really delicious. The moral of my story is, while I liked Quiznos, and I would have been ready and willing to eat there while waiting for my car to get some help, for someone who might not like Quiznos, when you're in a bind, something you might not have really gone for under normal conditions, It just starts to sound really good. Colleen was in a bind. And even though under different circumstances, she may have felt like accepting this ride wasn't the best thing for her, but decided to go ahead anyway because her options were narrow. But anyway, sorry for the Quizno sidetrack. I just thought if you guys liked my Dairy Queen reference... A couple of episodes back, you'd get a kick out of this. I don't like Quiznos, even though I've never eaten their story, too. But anyway, back to Colleen. She was in the bathroom. She eventually pushed aside her concerns. She didn't listen to the voices that were telling her to run. And she decided to go back and get back into the car. As much as we would have really wanted this story to go differently... I'll be honest, and I catch myself thinking it. She should have run. She should have not been hitchhiking. But I really have to stop myself from letting my mind go there because the bottom line is Colleen didn't do anything wrong. Were her decisions the best ones that she could have made? Well, for her, in the moment at the time, they were. No matter what Colleen decided to do or not do, she had the right to make those choices, to stay safe while making them, and to make them without any fear. If anything or anyone got in the way of that, Colleen still isn't the one who is wrong here. But anyway, she talked herself out of what was bugging her in the bathroom and continued on with the couple. What Colleen may have not known at the time was that the couple actually lived nearby the location where they had picked her up, there in Red Bluff. I don't know if they told Colleen that or not. I suspect that they didn't, because they wanted Colleen to think that they were headed an hour east towards Westwood, where she was going, right? It's likely that they lied to her to put Colleen at ease about getting into the car with them. 
So after they left the gas station, when Colleen got back into the vehicle, she noticed that there was a wooden box that hadn't been there before. In the back seat, next to where she had been sitting. It was very odd to her. She'd never seen a box quite like it. She looked at it for a minute, and she really had no idea what kind of box it was. So she just paid no mind to it. They all drove for a little while longer. Colleen said it was about another 20 minutes, so not that much longer. At which point, the couple asked Colleen if she wouldn't mind if they took a few extra minutes to stop and look at some ice caves. Now, Colleen wanted to get to her friend's house, but of course she was also grateful for this ride that the couple had offered her, so she didn't want to be rude or tell them what they could or couldn't do, and so she was like, well... It was not going to take too long, but she really needed to get to her friend's house. It was her birthday. So the man pulled off the freeway. It was a pretty isolated area. There was no traffic. There were no passersby. When they parked, the woman exited the vehicle and took the baby with her. Colleen watched as she walked down to a nearby stream or a brook. But what Colleen didn't notice was where the husband went. She didn't see where he had gone, and he hadn't walked off with the woman and the baby, so she was a little bit confused, wondering where he had went. And it was then when everything took a turn, a bad turn. The man suddenly snuck up on Colleen and attacked her. He pulled a knife and put it up to her throat. He bound her hands behind her back with handcuffs. She was gagged and blindfolded. The next thing that Colleen knew, her head was placed inside this wooden box contraption that this man had designed and built specifically for this opportunity. This was a plan a long time in the making, and Colleen just happened to be hitchhiking at a time when this man was hunting for someone exactly like her, someone that he wanted to make his slave. The whole idea of this makes me cringe. And if you've listened to all of the content that I've created over the past three years, you know that I don't cover cases like this very often. People being kidnapped and held captive for extended periods of time. I don't like referring to the victim as having been made into a sex slave. But in this case, that is exactly what this man was wanting and looking for. And there really is no sugarcoating it. This box, he locked it onto Colleen's head, and it was a part of this man's plan to enslave a woman. Whatever it was about this contraption, it gave him a great deal of pleasure to use it. Everything that this man would do to Colleen was for his own sexual desires and arousal. This box was made out of wood. It had hinges on it so it could just be clasped over the head with a hole at the bottom for the neck. It had a lock on it and it was made with a heavy lining of carpet inside so that no light or sound could get in and it had a very minimal amount of air that could pass in and out of the thing. It was a sensory deprivation device, a way to control the victim as they eventually begin to be unable to think clearly There's hallucination, there's isolation, and eventually 
It's one of the ways the kidnapping victim begins to feel dependent on their captor, as well as an attachment. It's commonly known as Stockholm Syndrome. Now, I'm not saying that this applied to Colleen. I don't think she necessarily had Stockholm Syndrome. There are some shades of it, but for the most part, she was pretending. I don't really see much of the Stockholm Syndrome in this case, at least not in her retelling of the story, which is simply put, trusting or feeling close or affectionate towards a captor by the victim of a kidnapping or a person who has been taken hostage. And it isn't actually a thing that can be officially diagnosed because of the difficulty in researching the phenomenon because it is so rare and inconsistent. Colleen was terrified. She had no idea what this man and his wife were going to do. Of course, her mind is thinking, these people are going to kill me. She's laying there in the back seat of this vehicle, bound with this contraption on her head. She eventually heard the woman come back to the vehicle. Everybody got back inside. She heard the engine start and they started driving again. They took her back to their home in Red Bluff. It was kind of a small, unassuming place in a quiet neighborhood. When they arrived, they took the box off from around Colleen's head. She still had the blindfold on. She was brought into the house and escorted downstairs into the basement of the home. Colleen was given sort of a small platform, maybe like a step stool or some kind of pedestal that the man had made out of wood for her to stand on, which she did. Her wrists were bound and attached to the wooden rafters of the basement, and then all of her clothing was removed. The man then removed the small platform that she'd been standing on, which caused Colleen to be hanging, suspended by those bindings around her wrists, which, with her full body weight for anyone, no matter how thin or small you may be, it's incredibly painful. So with her suspended from the rafters, the man picked up a whip and began whipping Colleen. She cried and screamed and struggled to find some place to put her feet to try and alleviate the pain of hanging there by her wrists. As this went on, Colleen was actually able to see somewhat through the bottom of her blindfold. And she noticed that there was a magazine nearby that was flipped open to a page that had a picture of a woman who was hanging in a similar way that Colleen was hanging. After the man had finished whipping her, which lasted about 10 or 15 minutes, he placed that wooden box underneath Colleen where she could barely rest her feet on her tippy toes. While she struggled to shift her weight around on her toes, from under her blindfold she could see the man and the woman having sex. So all that he did was purely for him to become sexually aroused, though to not have sex with Colleen, but rather his own wife. When they were done, the man next took the box out from under Colleen's feet and left her hanging there for another 10 to 15 minutes, all the while rubbing her all over her body with his hands and touching her everywhere. At some point, Colleen just blacked out. For how long, she doesn't really know. But when she came to, she realized that she was being taken down from the rafters, 
and from there she was forced into a box that the man had built there in the basement. Her wrists were bound with chains. He put the box back on her head. He tied her feet to the box that she was laying in. The box is described as being the shape and size of a coffin made out of wood. And this was the first night of an ordeal that would last for the next seven years, two months, and 22 days. That's 2,640 days. This would turn into a crime unlike anything any law enforcement agency in the United States had ever encountered up to that point. And this would be Colleen Stan's new life to be beaten and tortured and degraded every single day. She described being commanded by the man as he'd bark orders at her that she was to obey immediately. And there were times, though not too often, that the woman would become involved in the attacks, at least early on. Eventually, Colleen began hearing the couple call each other by their names. She was Janice, and the man, his name was Cameron. Cameron and Janice Hooker. Okay, dreamers, this episode is turning out to be more than two hours long. So I'm going to go ahead and split it into two parts just because of time constraints. I will get this part out for you as soon as possible. And the second part should be ready for you within a day or so. I already have it all written and ready to record. We will pick up from the beginning of Colleen Stan's captivity with this couple in part two coming up very shortly. So stay tuned. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for your patience and all of your love and support. Hang tight. I promise it won't be long. I know some of you like to listen to both parts all at once and don't like to wait too long for the second part to come out. And I don't like to wait either because I do want to move on to the next case as well. So we will finish this in part two, the tale of seven years in a box. And until then, sweet dreams. <laughs>